you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn once again to the book of Genesis and to the eighth chapter, Genesis and chapter eight, as we're continuing this ongoing exposition through this first book of the Christian scriptures. And we're going to read the entirety of Genesis and chapter eight. And so let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 8, beginning in verse 1, wherein Moses faithfully records. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, The first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. May God bless today, once again, the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word written as we have uh, stand or we as we are standing before as we've heard it read. We ask that you would make us to be fit recipients for thy word. Give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and stop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. 
Well, we are continuing today this exposition of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Christian scriptures. And we're, we're in a, the midst of looking especially at the narrative, which is called the flood narrative, a description of that cataclysmic flood, which the Lord brought upon the earth when man had fallen and God looked upon the pristine creation that he had made and saw that it was all good, but then he after the fall, he looks at it, after the spiraling descent of man, after, after Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, Cain rising up to strike down Abel and continuing sin that, that manifested itself in the line of those first men, those first human beings. God looked upon that and he saw that the depravity of mankind was great. And we saw this, didn't when we look back at Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And therefore the Lord determined, as it says in Genesis 6-7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And God's means of doing so was through this cataclysmic flood. And yet, as we have noted, God in his mercy saw fit to preserve one man in his household. And that man was Noah, as it says in Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so there was a remnant preserved in the ark that God directed Noah to build, as well as a remnant of the animals that God had created. Last time we saw in Genesis 7 how uh, the Lord uh, had commanded Noah that the time had come. He gave yet seven days uh, for Noah to, to uh, put the, what was the store into the ark and to bring the animals in. And finally we had seen in Genesis 7 and verse 16 that the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut the door of the ark and then the Lord commenced Uh, the bringing of the flood. And it came about through what were called in Genesis 7, 11, the the fountains of the great deep being opened, the windows of heaven being opened. And this also was accompanied, as we read in Genesis 7 and verse 12, by there being rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Again, this was not an ordinary flood. This wasn't a flash flood like might be happening today with the rain we're seeing outside today. But this was a cataclysmic uh, flood, something unprecedented uh, in natural history. And the result was a massive amount of water upon the earth, such as the earth had never known and such as the earth has not known since or uh, or will ever know again. We're told in Genesis 7, verse 20, that the water covered the mountains by some 15 cubits and upward. And indeed, it achieved its destructive purpose. As we read in Genesis 7, 21, that all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both man and beast, except for those who had entered the ark. As Moses records in Genesis 7, and verse 23, Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. If we could break the flood narrative up into three parts, we would see it has a kind of a beginning, middle and end. And in the record of Moses, we see the beginning part was the time before the flood. That's told us in Genesis 6, 1 through chapter 7, verse 10. And then there was the time during the flood that begins in Genesis 7, 11, and it will continue to Genesis 8, 14. And then there's the time after the flood, Genesis 8, 15 through chapter 9, verse 29. In Genesis 8, our passage before us today, we learn of some of the things that happened during the flood. And then we learn uh, of some of the things that began to happen after the the flood had subsided. So Genesis 8 sort of puts us in between describing the flood and describing what happened after it. Spiritually speaking, we might say that we see in Genesis 8 
especially a description of what we could call God's persevering, preserving, or sustaining grace. We speak, indeed, often and rightly so, especially in a Reformed church, of God's saving grace. And with respect to Noah, what we have seen of Noah, uh, we saw in Genesis 6-9 that he was described as a just man or a righteous man. And we noted that that likely indicates he was a saved man. Why was he just? Why was he righteous? Because he had been justified by faith. He was a converted man. And now we see in the midst of this flood that he not only had experienced spiritual salvation, but also physical deliverance from the flood. God's mercy in saving Noah, body and soul, is at the heart of Genesis 8 and may be, perhaps be best summed up in the opening words of chapter 8. As it begins, if you look at verse 1, and God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. If you think about it, the ark might well have been Noah's coffin. It would have been a very big coffin, three-story coffin, gopher wood coffin. Uh, he, he was in the ark, but the ark could have capsized. He could have died, could have drowned, could have been lost like, like everyone else. And instead, though, that uh, ark was not his coffin, but it became his lifeboat. God remembered Noah. God preserved, God kept Noah. And maybe by the end of our sermon today, we might be brought to consider the fact that God not only saves us, but he also continues to keep us. He remembers us. He preserves and maintains our lives. So let's turn to the passage and see if we can walk through it together. It's a longer passage, and we won't perhaps be able to give as much attention as we might like to some, but we'll hopefully work through it. We can divide Genesis 8 into three parts. First part, I would say, is verses 1 through 14. And I would describe this simply with the the expression, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah during the duration of the flood. The second part of our passage is verses 15 through 19. And I would describe this as God spoke unto Noah when the flood was ended. And then the third part of our passage would be the the final few verses, verses 20 through 22. And I would describe this as, we could describe as Noah built an altar, but I'm I'm gonna say, I'm going to describe it as Noah remembered the Lord in worship. God remembered Noah, then Noah remembered the Lord in worship. So let's walk briefly through those three parts of our passage. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 14. Given at the heading, God remembered Noah. Again, if Genesis 6, 8 speaks to the salvation of Noah, that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, then Genesis 8.1 speaks to the preservation of Noah. And in spiritual terms, we might say it speaks to sanctification. The fact that we're not just saved, but we continue to be kept and we continue to be grown in the Lord. God not only saves men, but he keeps men. Not only did this preservation from the destruction of the flood extend to Noah, But of course, it extended to every living thing upon the ark. So if you look at verse one, and God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And it's interesting that the cattle get a special call out as they have several times in the book of Genesis. And the noting of the preservation of these cattle sort of reminds me of the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you're familiar with the book of Jonah. God uh, sends the the prophet uh, Jonah, and Jonah's a reluctant prophet. He doesn't want to go. He knows that God will be merciful and gracious and spare the wicked city of Nineveh. And when God does that, Jonah is moping about it. And the very last verse of Jonah, the book of Jonah, Jonah 4.11 says, uh, has God speaking to his reluctant prophet, and he says, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, Wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. And so 
There's God's concern for the human inhabitants of the ark, but also for uh, these animals that were within the ark. And so we see that in the beginning of, uh, of Genesis 8.1. God spared the animals as well. And then look at the second half of verse 1. It says, And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And so we see that God brought an end here to the devastation that had come through this massive amount of water that was upon the, the, the earth. And what we learn here is that the flood did not end by natural means. It didn't begin by natural means. It doesn't end by natural means. God sovereignly ends it. And we're told in verse 1, second half of verse 1, that he did this by causing a wind to pass over the earth. Some of you may know that in Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach. And it's a word that shows up often in the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to a natural wind blowing, but it often refers to the spirit of God, the wind of God. And there's an interesting parallel here. There's an echo here because remember how creation had begun in Genesis 1 verse 2. God's spirit had moved over the waters. And now there's almost like a second creation that's taking part as God now is causing this wind or maybe even his spirit uh, to assuage these waters that had come down uh, in the flood. And I thought also of how when Christ spoke with Nicodemus at night in John 3 verse 8, he said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. It blows where it wants. We also read then in verse 2 that the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. We talked about uh, this phenomenon, if you go back to Genesis 1, that surrounding the firmament that God had made were these bodies of water. And again, we suggested last Sunday that the whole cosmology changed in the flood. The world isn't now like it was before the flood. But God caused the fountains of the deep, the windows of heaven to be stopped. And also the rain that had fallen back in Genesis 7:12 for 40 days and 40 nights. God also restrained sovereignly uh, these rains. And so God is bringing an end uh, to the flood. We read in verse 3, And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. And so uh, here... Uh, we have a note of, of, of precision exactly when these waters abated. It, it happened after 150 days. And you might look back at Genesis 7 verse 24. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And so there was a period of about five months where water was, was abating uh, after the flood had come upon the earth. Where did the waters go? Some of it formed into clouds. Some likely formed the oceans, rivers, lakes, and streams we see today. And some were absorbed into the earth itself. And then uh, we, we read in verse 4, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the, the mountains of Ararat. If you look back to Genesis 7, verse 11, we see that uh, the, the flood had begun and it commenced in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, in the 17th day of the month. And now it, the ark comes to rest in the seventh month. So five months later, 150 days later, on the 17th day of the month. So to the day that the flood had begun. And we're told it rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now there is a... a, a, a a mountain today, I think that's called Mount Ararat, somewhere between Turkey and Iran, a uh, singular mountain. doesn't tell us it landed on a singular mountain. It just gives us a general description. doesn't tell us a specific place, somewhere in the mountains of a place called Ararat. And then uh, he continues, look at verse 5, and the waters decrease continually until the 10th month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And so, again, we're continuing this sort of timeline that Moses is providing for us. Again, it had, this flood had begun in the second month, the 17th day of uh, the 600th year of Noah's life. Now, 
uh, we're, we're out, according to verse 5, into the 10th month and the first day of the month. And imagine them, them being able to look out and see the tops of the mountains after having floated on top of this water that was 15 cubits above the highest mountain peak everywhere in the world. I might add, as Elder Clark pointed out to me last Sunday after the service, the ark, as described by Moses uh, in Genesis 6 and 7, uh, as it's described there, uh, we're, we're not told anything about the ark having any means of steerage. It had no sails. It had no rudder. It just was made to float. Noah, we could say, was not the captain of the ship. The ark did not survive due to his superior seamanship. He did no navigating and brought it to no landing. Instead, the ark was directed and kept by God alone. Even after the ark came to rest upon the mountains, uh, we're we're told that uh, there was this this period of time would have been the seventh month when it rested in the mountains and it stayed there till the 10th month. And so they waited for roughly another two and a half months for things to stabilize yet more. We might just pause here and notice that the decrease of the floodwaters and its easement, as it's described here in Genesis eight, as Moses records it under the guidance of the spirit, There's a stress throughout this description of the fact that this did not happen all at once. Could God have done it that way? Could he have brought the flood in a moment and then then returned the waters in a moment? Of course he could have done done it that way. He's God. He can do as he pleases. But he chose instead for this abatement, for the end of the flood to happen slowly over a period of time. This brought to my mind the Lord's prophecy given to the people of God through Moses about their conquest of the promised land in Exodus 23 in verse 30 when the Lord told them, by little and little I will drive them out from before thee. He would drive out the Canaanites little by little later in the history of Israel. At this point, describing the flood, It doesn't, the the easement, the abatement of the flood doesn't happen all at once, but it happens little by little, slowly, incrementally. If I could just pause here for a moment, we're going to have spiritual application eventually, but just think for a second, if we could take the the flood as a, a metaphor, a sign, spiritually speaking, of a trial that one must go through, a difficulty. Might we consider that sometimes our our troubles and distresses do not end immediately? But God is often pleased only to give us relief slowly, little by little. Sometimes he's pleased to do things like he he can remove troubles immediately. Of course, he's God. But sometimes he allows them to only be alleviated slowly, incrementally, perhaps to, to, to bring about a greater dependence upon him, perhaps to develop and cultivate within us prayer. I, I imagine prayer life was quite cultivated on the ark, don't you think? That there was much prayer. Well, the flood subsides little by little. We see it here. Let's go on and look at verse 6. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. There's a description of this window in chapter 6 and verse 16. And now Noah uh, opens the window and he's going to set out a series of practical tests to see if the land is yet habitable by sending out birds. And there, there are going to be four of these practical tests that he, uh, that he undertakes. The first of these begins in verse 7. It says, And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro, until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Now, when I hear the mention of a raven in the Bible, the first thing I think of, kids, maybe from Bible school, what do you think about? Elijah. Right. Remember Elijah in the wilderness and the drought 
And uh, you can look at that at 1 Kings 17, 6, how the, the ravens brought food to Elijah. This is before that. Noah sends out a raven. It's a bit hard to discern, I think, exactly precisely what happened with this raven. It says in verse 7 that it went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. I, does this mean it simply stayed near the ark, landing and leaving, since no other place at this time could be found? It's not explained, but at the least we could say this first experiment of Noah showed that departure from the ark was not yet safe. And so in verse 8, we read of a second test, second of four tests. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. And this first dove, second bird test, but second first dove, likewise found no place of rest outside the ark and returned to it. Look at verse 9. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. One commentator noted especially the reference to the sole of her foot and suggested that Noah would have looked at the bottom of the dove's foot to see if there was any dirt on it or any, anything that would show any sign of having made contact with, with dry, dry ground. Um, but this, this second bird test, first dove test, again shows that as yet they cannot exit the ark. Thirdly then, in verse 10, we are told, and he stayed yet other seven days. And he stayed yet other seven days. And this is the beginning of several indications throughout this chapter of the patience of Noah. I mean, he had done two tests. He had sent the raven out. He sent the dove out. And both those tests had failed. I mean, why didn't he just throw his hands up and say, I quit. I tried. I tried twice. God hasn't yet dried up the ground. Oh, I quit. I'm going to give up. Most times, when we are ready to give up, we need only to wait. Most times, when we're ready to give up, we need only to wait. No doubt Noah prayed during this time. And after those seven days were concluded, we read in verse 10, And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. He didn't give up. He was patient. He waited. He trusted in God. And so he sent the dove. I don't know if it was the same dove or another. And we're told in verse 11, and the dove came in to him in the evening. Apparently it had been sent out in the morning. And lo, look at verse 11, in her mouth, was an olive leaf plucked off. And so this time on the third test, the dove brings back a harbinger of hope. It brings back an olive leaf plucked off. The description in this verse has become a kind of universal symbol. Even people who don't know the Bible will see the picture of a dove with a olive leaf in its beak and and know that that's a symbol for what? Peace. Whatever one thinks of the United Nations, and I'm sure there might be different opinions in this room about that, we can at least observe that it takes as one of its symbols a dove with an olive branch in its mouth. In the Bible, of course, the dove is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When Christ is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, as it's recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, it tells us that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Luke even says the Spirit descended in bodily form, somatikos, the Greek adverb, as a dove. God's Spirit is with Noah. God's Spirit is with Noah. And from this third experiment, We're told in verse 11, end of verse 11, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. What a relief. 
What comfort this must have been to him and to everyone else within the ark. But this was not yet the end. I told you this happens little by little. It's like, come on, let the flood end. It's no, not yet. Not yet. It's not done yet. Wait, be patient. And, and so they're not yet out of the ark. There has to be, uh, there has to be yet, yet more to come. There has to be yet, yet more experimenting. And so uh, we, we read, continue to read in verse 12 of the fourth experiment. And he stayed yet other seven days. This man had had no end of his ability to be patient, to be prudent, to be cautious, to wait. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And so now there is empirical evidence that there's dry land out there because the dove doesn't return. In verse 13, we are given another significant time signature as we read, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month and the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. Now notice we pass into another year of Noah's life now. The flood had started in his 600th year, the second month of his 600th year. And now we've passed into the first month and the first day of of his 601st year. And so uh, think about it. He's been on this ark and all the other inhabitants have been on the ark for 11 months. And, uh, and, and they, they're still on the ark. And we notice at the end of verse 13, it says, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Can you imagine after 11 months? I've heard people say they've gone on short-term cruises and they go stir-crazy. And they're so glad to have the stops in port. Can you imagine 11 months? A few years ago, I had a friend who did the UVA semester at sea. And I said, that, was, that must have been great. And he said, yeah, it was, but I just got tired of being on that ship. Uh, can you imagine? Terra firma. 11 months, they can see dry ground. Again, we know how the story ends. At this point, the inhabitants didn't know. Maybe God was going to keep the flood. Maybe it was going to persist. They see dry ground. They see evidence that this is coming to an end. And then look at verse 14. And in the second month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, was the earth dry. And so isn't it interesting how... Uh, Moses gives to us on the direction of the Holy Spirit there's such precision about dating the time frame for the flood. How long did the flood last? There's no mystery about it. We're told exactly. It started in the 600th year of Noah's life on the second month, the 17th day. It ends in the 601st year of his life, the second month and the 27th day. This means it lasted one year and 10 days to the dot. Just as God had planned, just as God had decreed it. And again, the overarching theme, if I could call it that, I think for this first section of Genesis 8 is that during this trial, this incremental trial, this long trial, one year, this long trial, God did not abandon Noah. God remembered Noah. God was with him at every little by little stage of the flood sojourn. Let's look at the second part of our text, second of three, verses 15 through 19. And I labeled it, God spoke unto Noah when the flood was ended. We had the pre-flood period, we've got the flood period, and now begins the post-flood period. And, and Genesis 8 sort of straddles the, the flood period and the now beginning the post-flood period. It begins in verse 15. And God spake unto Noah, saying. 
You might remember that God had spoken to Noah uh, before the ark was even constructed. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 13, and God said unto Noah, and there's a speech that Moses records for us. So there's a a pre-flood speech that God gives to Noah, and now there's a post-flood speech that God gives to Noah. In this speech, the Lord is giving directions. He's giving instructions. In the days of Noah, in the the days of the Old Testament prophets, God spoke. He, He spoke His words to His people or to representatives of His people. And by virtue of the fact we're reading it, we know that Moses now took those words and inscripturated them, wrote them down so that they're words that weren't just spoken to Noah in his day, but now through the inscripturation of God's word, they're being spoken to us. And so he seems to say two things to him. Look at verse 16. He says, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. We were talking quite a bit here about the patience and the caution, the prudence of Noah. But in the end, the decision to leave the ark was not his, but the Lord's. We are reminded that Noah walked with God, as we're told in Genesis 6-9, just as Enoch had done. He had communion with God, and God spoke to him and directed his path. He did not leave the ark till God told him to. Just those words, go forth out of the ark. The thing that came to my mind was the Great Commission. The risen Christ telling the apostles, go, teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. This is another kind of commission where, where Noah and his household are told to go forth from the ark. Many might have been afraid to leave the safety of the ark. Like I said, what if God sent another flood? As yet, God had not told them he would refrain from such. Then the second thing that he says begins in verse 17, and it is the the commission to bring forth the animals that have been kept in the ark. Look at verse 17. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. I said that there's a bit of a new creation that's being described in the, the, the narrative of the flood. We talked about God's spirit hovering over the waters. And you remember when God had created on the fifth day of creation the land animals back in Genesis 1 verse 22. He had blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply. And now there's sort of a new creation where God is saying to all these animals that they still have their generative powers. God could have cut those off, but instead he sends them out uh, with the command that they are to breed abundantly in the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And God, this is part of God's grace. He's peopling the earth, populating the earth with all these creatures that will be there for the good and benefit of man. We'll see later, next time, when we look at Genesis 9, God willing, how there will also be a blessing and the mandate for the human occupants of the ark to be fruitful and multiply. You can look ahead and see that in Genesis 9 and verse 1. And then in verse 18, we've got another, we've seen this before, of a note of the obedience of Noah. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him we see that Noah was obedient to the command of God. We saw this, didn't we, going all the way back to chapter 6, verse 22. Thus did Noah, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And likewise, Genesis 7, verse 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And here we see his obedience on display again. Not only does he bring out his family, but also he obeys the second part of the the commission. Look at verse 19. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. What we see here in this second part again, through God's speech, is another thing I think we can apply spiritually. That is, those whom God saves... 
And those whom God preserves, He also directs by His Word. Those whom He saves, those whom He preserves and keeps, He also directs by His Word. Let's look finally then at the third part of our text. The third part of our text. And I've called this, Noah remembered the Lord in worship. The passage begins in verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. We saw, you might remember back in Genesis 4, verse 26, at the time of Seth and his son Enos, it says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4, 26 was apparently the beginning of what we could call corporate worship. Now, after the flood, we have the first mention of an altar being built and sacrifice being made in worship. And of course, the Lord had provided for this in the instructions given to Noah. If you look back at Genesis 7, verses 2 and 3, remember he was told to bring of every clean beast seven pairs, male and female, and of the fowl also, uh, they were to bring them by seven pairs. And so these clean beasts and fowl were to be used for worship. And so they were provided. God had provided for this upon the ark. And uh, with the flood uh, having subsided, the first thing Noah does, what's his first act of service? The, the first description of anything he does before he tills the land, before he builds a house, before he builds a shelter, before he builds a hospital or a school, he builds an altar. The first thing. The first concern of a believer is to build an altar to worship the Lord. And, of course, at this time, that that worship involved the sacrifice of animals. I was reading a a book recently about sort of the the phenomenon of religion, and the the, the author was making the observation that that there's sort of a a universal... um, phenomenon in religions all over the world that they involve typically involve sacrifices sacrifices of animals the pouring out of blood and where does this come from what is what are the origins of this and, and here uh, in, in this first uh, mention we have an altar and it's the first mention of sacrifices being given Cain and Abel gave offerings to the Lord, but doesn't mention the sacrifice of animals directly. But here we got the first mention of it. And we also have the mention of the Lord's response to it. Look at, at, at verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. What does this mean? It has to be taken spiritually. The Lord does not have a nose with which to smell. But Moses is using the language of human accommodation to relay to us that the Lord was pleased with Noah's worship. He was pleased with the sacrifices that were made upon the altar. Next, guided by the Holy Spirit, Moses, as he writes this, look at verse 21. It's very interesting because Moses, directed by the Spirit, brings us into the heart of God himself. Sometimes the biblical writers will tell us of what, say in the New Testament, what Peter was thinking or some other character, but some other figure in history. But, but here we're, 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 we're given insight into the mind of God at this point after the flood. And so it begins in verse 21, and the Lord said in his heart. Again, God doesn't have a heart, but this is metaphorically. God said within himself, within his deepest recesses, within his knowledge, within his mind. And there are three things that are told to us. First, God says in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. We read of the curse in Genesis 3, the curse upon the serpent, the curse upon the woman, the curse upon the man. 
But here we see an extravagant display of God's mercy. There will be no further cursing brought upon the earth because of the sin of man. God is tempered in the judgment that he has brought rightly upon man for sin. Secondly, notice the second thing that that is revealed to us from the heart of the Lord via Moses is for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. What this tells us is that after the flood, the human beings are preserved are not persons who don't have, have not inherited from Adam original sin. They, they are going to have sin natures. Noah and his sons and their descendants, they're going to have sin natures and they're going to commit actual transgressions. And it's, 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 it's an indication from the, the heart of God that the men whom he has preserved and allowed, they will be sinners and sin will stain every aspect of their lives and it will come upon them at the moment of their conception and be worked out in their actual transgressions. This is a proof text for for what we call total depravity. The reality of the sin problem that human beings have. What wretched and hopeless men we are apart from God's grace in Christ. The third thing that is revealed to us, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. There will be no more destruction of the world by the flood. As we will see later in Genesis 9, if you look ahead to verses 14 and 15, you'll see it there. And we'll talk about it, God willing, next week. God will give a special token of his covenant with Noah. And and it will be visually symbolized by by the the bow in the heavens, a thing of beauty after a storm. Here, we've got the preliminary indication from the mind of the Lord that he will not uh, destroy the world in the way that he had at the time of the flood. Finally, then, the last verse, the Lord pledges instead positively His faithfulness to mankind and this world through the seasons that are to come. Look at verse 22. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. We have no worries and no fears that the fall is going to be followed, friends, this year by the winter. And the winter by the spring. And the spring by the summer. And we don't have to go to bed tonight anxious and worried as to whether we'll see the sunrise tomorrow morning. And every time we pass through a season of the year and every time we we wake every morning, go to bed every night, we should be reminded visibly by the faithfulness of God. It doesn't have to be this way. But he's faithful to us. Well, friends, we've, we've worked through the passage, believe it or not, and... I hope with the Spirit's help, you've already connected some of the spiritual dots. But can we, can we take just a few moments and think a little bit about what are the spiritual gleanings? What are the lessons? Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that the things were written aforetime were written for our instruction. That we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so what do we learn from this account? I want us finally to return to the initial thought about the spiritual significance of the way this chapter begins. And God remembered Noah. And then take your eye to the end of the chapter, to verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. God remembered Noah and Noah builded an altar under the Lord. Might I suggest that this teaches us that those whom God saves, he does not leave alone. He remembers them and he helps them to persevere even through terrible trials by his grace. He directs them by his word. He does not leave them alone, but he speaks to them and he instructs them.
And the godly man's response to this ought to be worship. It ought to be praise of our God. Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. He built it before he built a home. He built it before he built a hospital or a school. We better, we better build a church. We, we better build a chapel in our hearts where we might worship the Lord. In Noah's day, this was a place of sacrifice. Blood was spilled. Victims were offered on the altar. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament is but a shadow and a type of a greater one that was to come, friends. And that greater sacrifice, that greater gift that was to come was the giving up of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. That sacrifice was indeed a sweet-smelling savor before the Father. God remembered Noah. And we might say, Noah remembered the Lord. This is why we come to worship. All true worship is gratitude. He remembered us and we remember him. What did Christ say when he instituted the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember him because he first remembered us. Let us be worshipers of our God in spirit and in truth and offer to him the sacrifice of praise. This is why Christianity was such a weird religion in the first century. I, when I teach survey of the New Testament, that's, that's one of the things I like. It's very delicious to share this with students. That Christianity was the first bloodless religion. The pagans thought they were weird. What do you mean? You guys get together and you don't sacrifice animals? No, the Christians said. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who once for all offered his life upon the cross. Nothing can be added from it and nothing can be taken from it. And we're the gracious recipients of his grace and mercy through his bloodshed on the cross. What can we do in light of this but build an altar and give praise and thanks to him? Amen? Amen. I invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word. And even in this Old Testament account, we see the light of the gospel shining through that you have saved us. You remember us in our distress. You walk us through little by little our calamities. You keep us. And in response, we, we, we offer you the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving today. Receive the worship of a grateful people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.